Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Daphne, and I will be reading with you the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, January the 25th. We begin with the weather. It's raining. Today, the forecast is rain and drizzle in the a.m., cloudy and foggy, high of 52. Tonight, cloudy with rain and drizzle late, low of 40. Tomorrow, Friday, occasional rain, high of 46, low of 37. Saturday, low clouds, high of 44, low of 34. Sunday, periods of rain, high of 39, low of 26. And Monday, cloudy, a bit of snow, windy and cooler, high of 30, low of 24. And for all of us who are watching the daylight, today the sun rose at 7 a.m., will set at 4.47, which gives us 9 hours and 47 minutes of sunlight, or at least daylight. And to the lottery. For the numbers game, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, the 24th, the midday drawing was 4173. Again, midday drawing of the numbers game yesterday, 4173. And the evening drawing for the numbers game, 5848. Again, the, the evening drawing for the numbers game, 5848. For mass cash, drawn yesterday, January the 24th, the numbers are 11, 13, 24, 28, 29. Again, for mass cash, drawn yesterday, the 24th, the numbers are 11, 13, 24, 28, 29. For Powerball, <clears throat> drawn yesterday, the 24th, the numbers are 1, 5, 32, 50, 64, and the Powerball is 8. Again, for Powerball drawn yesterday, the numbers are 1, 5, 32, 50, 64, with the Powerball of 8. <clears throat> for Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, the 23rd, the numbers are 21, 28, 58, 69, 70, and the Mega Ball is 20. Again, Mega Millions drawn on Tuesday. The numbers are 21, 28, 58, 69, 70, and the Mega Ball is 20. For Mega Bucks drawn yesterday, the 24th, the numbers are 11, 13, 14, 26, 29, and 30. Again, Mega Bucks drawn yesterday, the 24th, 11, 13, 14, 26, 29, and 30. And Lucky for Life, drawn Wednesday, the 24th, the numbers are 2, 3, 13, 19, 34, and the Lucky Ball is 8. Again, Lucky for Life, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 2, 3, 13, 19, 34, 
and the lucky ball is eight. And on to the news from the front page of the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, January the 25th. The lead story is entitled Replacement Grants and Rehabilitation, by uh, reported by Walker Armstrong for the Cape Cod Times. And there is a photograph of the Sagamore Bridge. After news broke in December that the first round of funding had been secured for the replacement of the Bourne and Sagamore bridges, a renewed sense of hope was resurrected for a project long mired in setbacks and uncertainty. But as U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, told the Times in December, the initial $372 million of funding underscored the fact that, quote, we still have a long way to go before the project, estimated to cost around $4.5 billion, sees completion. In the meantime, a number of other factors, from additional funding to design considerations, need to fall into place before Brown can break on the actual replacement. And officials said they expect some noteworthy developments within the next year. Christy Senatori, executive director for the Cape Cod Commission, said funding for the project will be rolled out in phases. On top of the $372 million from the federal multimodal project discretionary grant program, money from other grants were applied for as well. Quote, we look forward to hearing the, what we hope is good news <clears throat> about the bridge investment program, the $1.07 billion grant request in the coming months, Senatori said. These grant awards will also put a firm t timeline on the project, as we anticipate there'll be specific deadlines associated with the grant funding, close quote. Senatori said more information in the coming months regarding the Phase 2 Bourne Bridge replacement could also be announced on the back of Phase 1 funding. Quote, we acknowledge the importance of the strategic decision to initially focus on funding requests for the Sagamore Bridge replacement, but also want to be clear that the Bourne Bridge is important and can't be forgotten, Senatori said. Governor Mora, Mora Healy's office announced on August 14th an application plan for securing $1.44 billion in federal discretionary grant money for the project. The grants included $150 million from the Nationally Significant Multimodal Freight and Highway Projects Program and $222 million from National Infrastructure Project Assistance. They were closely followed by the Bridge Investment Program, the largest share, at over $1.07 billion. On December 4th, the Massachusetts Department of Transportation announced a joint application with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers seeking $1.06 billion in federal funding. The question of whether or not major rehabilitation for the bridges will be required, a costly and time-consuming process, has loomed over the project thus far. Cape Cod Commission Deputy Director Stephen Tupper said rehabilitation would result in extended lane closures on both bridges and a delay in the ability to secure funding for the project. Quote, 
If the bridges are not replaced in an expedient fashion, the Army Corps has indicated major rehabilitation would be necessary, close quote, Tupper said Monday in a meeting of the Metropolitan Planning Organization. Quote, if either of the bridges undergoes a major rehabilitation, it could be a full bridge closure for four to six months and temporary lane closures totaling 12 to 16 months, close quote. If the replacement project doesn't commence as expected, rehabilitation would be necessary for the Sagamore in the 2025 to 2027 timeframe and the Bourne Bridge within the 2029-2031 timeframe, according to a March 2020 report authored by the Army Corps. The report's estimated cost for major rehabilitation on both bridges totals around $342 million. Quote, any appreciable delay in decision-making or funding could force the government to pursue major rehabilitation instead of bridge replacement in order to maintain reliability and safety of vehicular traffic over the canal in the near term, the report said. Warren told the Times in December the project could see more necessary funding as soon as spring, but no further funding announcement have been made as of Wednesday. Another agency involved in the project is the Massachusetts Environmental Policy Act Office. The agency, commonly referred to as the MEPA office, is tasked with studying the environmental impacts of projects that require state permitting, financial assistance, or land disposition. And because the project is being handled by both state and federal agencies, the MEPA review process is being done alongside the National Environmental Policy Act office review. An environmental notification form was submitted by the State Department of Transportation to the MEPA office in May 2023. Next, a draft environmental impact statement analyzing impacts to wetlands, climate change, environmental justice protocols, and other factors will be filed and reviewed by the MEPA office. There are no legal requirements outlining a time frame the State Transportation Department is required to compile the draft environmental impact statement within, but an official from the MEPA office said they are required to conduct a 37-day review along with a 30-day period of public comment. The Cape Cod Canal bridges were designed and built in the 1930s, seeing roughly one million crossings annually, Tupper said. These days, he said that the figure has shot up to nearly 38 million, about the same as the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, which is about six times the length and twice the width. Quote, things have changed since 1935, certainly an obvious statement, said Tupper. Given the way these bridges were designed, it's really a challenge to continue to maintain them, close quote. In order to combat the peak season traffic and structural deficiencies of the canal bridges, Tupper said a number of modern design considerations are being hashed out to ensure vehicular, pedestrian, and bicycle traffic can traverse the canal with relative ease. At the moment, the design for a replacement is a twin-arch style bridge with three lanes in each direction separated by a median divider. 
There's also a shoulder for future repairs and maintenance, along with a shared-use path for pedestrians and cyclists. Quote, there were a number of different concepts, and this one, the Twin Arch, was identified as preferred, and it certainly nods to the look of the existing bridges, but as a modern structure, Tupper said. More front, new, front page news from the Cape Cod Times from the Bom- Barnstable Town Council. Leaders see change in offshore wind and zoning, reported by Heather McCarran for the Cape Cod Times. With the first month of the new year nearly at an end, new leadership is settling in at the helm of the Barnstable Town Council. Newcomers Felicia Penn and Craig Tamash, who joined the town's top governing board after the November 7th election, were selected as the council president and vice president in December and already have two meetings under their belts. With them, they bring a change of approach, which Penn and Tamash characterize as more, quote, different than transformational, and certainly not change and certainly not change that sets up a house to divide against itself, Penn emphasized. Quote, I can't imagine a group that sees itself as us versus them. It's not productive for anyone and certainly not for the organization, she said. Penn and incumbent Councillor Paula Schnepp were nominated for president, while Tamash and incumbent Councillor Gordon Starr were nominated for vice president. Penn and Tamash were each selected by a 7-6 to six vote. Former President Matthew Levesque, who was re-elected to the council, said the selection of freshman members to the leadership roles is a bit unprecedented, but it doesn't surprise him. Quote, I think for a number of the councillors, that was their hope, a change in power, he said, and that's okay with him. Schnepp, who served beside Levesque as vice president, said she is not surprised. Quote, we had a significant change in council membership as a result of the November 2023 election. This change translated to a desire for new leadership, she said. Though Penn and Tamish may be newcomers to the council, neither are new to work and service here. A native Cape Codder, Penn formerly owned, formerly co-owned Puritan of Cape Cod, a men's and clo- women's clothing outfit her grandfather opened in 1919. She's been deeply involved in community and county service, from serving as past president of the Hyannis Area Chamber of Commerce and of the Rotary Club of Hyannis, to chairing the Barnstable County Economic Development Council, sitting on the Barnstable Planning Board and the Barnstable County Health and Human Service Advisory Council, to name a few of her many roles. Tamish, a 41-year-old, a 41-year veteran of the Barnstable Police Department and now retired deputy chief, has deep connections in Barnstable. Among other roles, he served for two years as a member of the Barnstable Representative Town Meeting before there was a town council, was a call firefighter EMT with the Centerville-Osterville-Marsden Mills Fire District for 19 years, served on the Osterville Village Association Board of Directors for five years, and volunteers with Barnstable Neighbor to Neighbor, a nonprofit that connects older residents to support them staying in their own homes. As for the change they signify, 
both see it as a reflection of what the voters were looking for, more inclusion in the process, more chances to be heard, more transparency. Quote, I think the sentiment was that it was time for a change, and I'm certainly not casting aspersions on anyone at all, said Tamish. Sometimes you need a little change, close quote. Under her and Tamish's leadership, Penn said residents can expect the overriding concerns to be how to pay for the implementation of the Comprehensive Wastewater Management Plan, sewers, how to protect the town's drinking water and provide enough drinking water for future growth, how to support affordable housing targeted to the local workforce that is in scale with the area where it is built, and how to respond to the challenges of sea level rise and climate change overall. Quote, I think the former council would say they were doing that, Penn acknowledged. Yes, they were. The difference is in the attitude and accessibility of leadership and a sensitivity to the public's percep perception and ability to participate, close quote. Like Penn, Levesque, who served as president for the last three years, also doesn't characterize the changing of the guard as a, quote, po power struggle kind of thing, close quote. His greatest desire is to see the new leadership continue to pursue the same philosophy he and Schnepp did, to think of the community inclusively. On the council, Levesque said, quote, you don't necessarily have someone you agree with on everyone. There are always differences of opinion and style, and debate is always expected and welcome, close quote. The important thing, he said, is to invite and listen to all arguments respectfully, carefully weigh them, and finally, quote, to do what's best for the whole town, not just what's best for a particular village. Penn and Hamish concerned about housing Hyannis zoning changes. As one example, he hopes the council can continue to weigh various solutions on the issue of housing. Levesque admitted he's concerned the new makeup of the council could put too much emphasis on policy related to short-term rentals and sideline ideas, such as giving life to blighted and underused properties by reshaping them for affordable residential units to meet the needs of the town's growing population of immigrants and young working families. Schnepp shares the sentiments. During her time as vice president, she said, quote, we brought forward zoning changes that opened up opportunities for new housing units in downtown Hyannis and allowed the creation of accessory dwelling units by right across the entire town, close quote. Like Levesque, Schnepp said, quote, I hope that new leadership will continue to prioritize providing affordable housing options for all in our community, close quote. Penn and Tamish agree housing is a top issue, and there is room to discuss more than one simultaneous approach. Quote, no counselor is going to say we don't need affordable housing. Of course we need affordable housing, said Tamish. The question is, how do you get there? I don't have the answer, but we're never going to build our way out of this issue, close quote. Penn and Tamesh are concerned about some of the zoning code changes adopted for downtown Hyannis. Quote, 
The growth incentive zone, which is still in place and preceded this new zoning, allowed for commercial on the first floor with top-of-shop housing up to three floors by right. This zoning allows for the same, but up to four floors, which has to be recessed eight feet. Except, for some strange reason, the mandate for commercial on the first floor only runs on Main Street between Ocean Street and C Street, Penn said. This makes no sense to her, quote, as it's the first floor commercial use that drives the vitality of Main Street, not housing on the first floor, she said. Quote, Main Street needs the synergy of not only first floor commercial uses, but also interactive recreational spaces to attract and retain customers, Penn said. Over the past 15 years or more, Main Street has lost its mini golf and carousel, both of which were major attractions for families. These have not been replaced. Building large buildings directly on Main Street just for housing, in my opinion, will deaden the space more. Penn thinks the zoning, as is, quote, needs to be fixed to accommodate this, as well as to rethink the feasibility of allowing just one parking space for, per unit. Penn and Tamash agree that short-term rentals are problematic and should also be a top topic of discussion. Quote, what we're seeing now is the houses that used to be available for long-term rent are now being bought up by investors to use as Airbnbs, Tamash said. It's not just us. This is a nationwide phenomenon, close quote. As part of its housing conversation, Penn thinks the town needs to find a way to disincentivize commercial uses of properties in residential neighborhoods. Offshore wind is another area where the newly constituted, constituted council is positioned to give a more hypervigilant reception, though this shift began before the election. In October, the body put the brakes on further local action related to Park City Wind and Commonwealth Wind until they could investigate concerns about cable landings at Craigville and Dowses Beaches, as well as plans for a substation on Chute Flying Hill Road upgradient from Lake Wekakwet and a wellhead protection area. The council indicated at the same time that the membership did not support bringing cables ashore at Dowses Beach based on the project's environmental impact report and had questions about electromagnetic fields and routing cables from Craigville Beach underneath the Centerville River. Although there is general, generally support for renewable energy, Tamesh said, quote, people are starting to realize a lot of the implications of having these huge industrial wind projects in the town, close quote. Penn agrees, quote, There is lots of risks involved in hosting these cables, she said. This is an area that is new to all of us, and therefore I will be supporting efforts within the town to gain as much information as possible so that future decisions are well-informed, close quote. In other areas, Penn said she has several changes in mind, quote, that are meant to make the council function better and be more responsive to the residents. It's a work in progress, she said. One of her planned changes is to open the council's agenda-setting meetings to the public and to all councillors. Quote, 
I heard over and over again that it was secret as to how items made it on the agenda, and I think this is something that can be rectified immediately, Penn said. She's also asked staff to make agendas available by the Friday before the council meetings, which are typically held twice a month on Thursdays, instead of two days before the meetings. It's an effort aimed at helping counselors prepare for the upcoming meeting and to give the public more time to access the agenda. Quote, Already I'm getting positive feedback from agendas being released the Friday before the Thursday meetings, Penn said. And since our meeting times are in the process of being changed to 6 p.m., I believe the public and fellow counselors will respond well to that, too. These are little changes, but they mean a lot in the long term, close quote. Penn wants to create several council subcommittees comprised of counselors, but also posted an advertise to the public, quote, so if members of the public wish to attend and contribute, they are welcome to do so. For example, I hope to create a town council rules and town charter review committee. The town council rules have not been reviewed since 2019, so this work needs to be done said Penn, though she has no specific changes in mind. Another article from the front page of the Cape Cod Times is entitled Driver Killed in Mashpee Car Crash Identified, reported by Denise Coffey. The 61-year-old man who died in a single car crash on Tuesday has been identified. Joseph Ketty was driving the Cadillac Escalade that crossed Route 28, hit a tree, and ended up in the parking lot of Bosun's Marine, according to Mashpee Police Captain Thomas Rose. Rose said the investigation into why the crash happened is ongoing. Police are reviewing video surveillance and talking to possible witnesses, he said. Bosun Marine's employee, Al Andrade, said no one at the boat dealer saw what happened. Quote, we were all inside, he said by telephone Wednesday. We just heard a big bang, and everyone came out and saw what it was, close quote. Andrade said the, the police and fire departments were on the scene within about a minute. Emergency personnel took Ketty out and started doing CPR on him, Andrade said. Quote, I'm sorry for his family. Andrade said. And international news from the front page of the Cape Cod Times. Hamas official rejects two-state solution, reported by John Bacon for USA Today. The militant massacres of Israelis on October the 7th has revived the dream of a Palestinian state that includes the current state of Israel, a senior Hamas official says. Khaled Mashal, in a Kuwaiti podcast drawing wide attention Wednesday, dismissed any two-state solution, rejected recognition of the Israeli state, and said there was, quote, nearly a consensus, close quote, among P Palestinians that their state should stretch from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. That would include the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and all of Israel. Mashal a billionaire living in Qatar said 17 years of rule in Gaza allowed Hamas to build military strength unimpeded by Israel, and he expressed no remorse for the thousands of deaths and devastation triggered across Gaza by the militant assault. Quote, there was no freedom in Gaza, Mashal said in a translation by the Times of Israel. 
quote, there was an apparent stability, but life was not good. Palestinians are not interested in improving their lives under occupation, close quote. Meanwhile, the United States the United Nations chief warned Israel on Tuesday that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's rejection of a two-state solution will indefinitely prolong a conflict that is threatening global peace and emboldening extremists everywhere. In his toughest language yet on the Israeli-Hamas war, Secretary General Antonio Guterres told a ministerial meeting of the UN Security Council that, quote, the right of the Palestinian people to build their own fully independent state must be recognized by all, and a refusal to accept the two-state solution by any party must be firmly rejected. Close quote. The alternative of a one-state solution, quote, with such a large number of Palestinians inside without any real sense of freedom, rights, and dignity will be inconceivable, he said. The health ministry says more than 25,400 people have been killed and another 63,000 wounded in Gaza since the October 7th attack in southern Israel, in which militants from the enclave killed about around 1,200 people and took about 250 hostages. Israeli ground forces have encircled the southern city of Khan Yunis, Gaza's second largest, the military said Wednesday. Thousands of Palestinians were forced to flee farther south, and the destruction has been extensive. Two Israeli tank rounds struck a youth center sheltering 800 people, setting it ablaze, causing, quote, mass casualties, U.N. Refugee Director Thomas White said on social media. At least nine people were killed and 75 injured, he said. Heavy fighting also raged around the region's two main hospitals. Shelling hit the fourth floor of Al-Amal Hospital, killing one person and wounding ten others, according to the Palestine Red Crescent Rescue Service. On Tuesday, the military announced the militants killed 21 Israeli soldiers in the deadliest single attack of the ground war against Hamas. Israeli soldiers were preparing to demolish two buildings outside central Gaza's Magazi refugee camp when a militant fired a rocket-propelled grenade at a tank nearby, military said. The blast triggered the explosives, collapsing the buildings onto the soldiers. Israeli media said the troops were working to create an informal buffer zone along the border to prevent militants from attacking Israeli communities near Gaza. Military spokesperson Daniel Hagari said the mission was to clear buildings to create the conditions that would allow the residents of the south to return to their homes. Netanyahu mourned the Israeli soldiers and vowed to press ahead until, quote, absolute victory, including crushing Hamas and freeing the remaining 130-plus hostages. Pressure was mounting Wednesday for the Israeli government to negotiate a hostage deal. But senior Egyptian officials said Hamas has rejected a two-month ceasefire proposed by Israel that would free the hostages held by militants and thousands of Palestinians held in Israeli jail. The deal also would have allowed Hamas leaders in Gaza to relocate to other countries. 
The Wall Street Journal, however, said Hamas leaders have expressed a willingness to discuss releasing some captives in exchange for a significant pause in fighting. In addition to defeating Hamas, Netanyahu says Israel is also committed to returning the hostages who remain in captivity after most of the others were freed during a November ceasefire. But many Israelis, including at least one member of Netanyahu's war cabinet, say that's impossible without reaching another agreement with Hamas, and the military group says it won't release any more hostages until Israel ends its offensive. Egypt and Qatar are working on a new agreement, but officials say the gap between the two sides is still too wide. Two American-flagged container ships carrying Pentagon and State Department cargo were attacked near Yemen on Wednesday, but the U.S. Navy intervened and no injuries or damage were reported. Quote, Iranian-backed Houthi terrorists fired three anti-ship ballistic missiles from Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen toward the U.S.-flagged, owned, and operated container ship MV Maersk Detroit, transiting the Gulf of Aden, of Aden, U.S. Central Command said in a statement. One of the missiles crashed into the sea, and the other two were shot down by the USS Gravely, the statement said. The incident comes as the U.S. and other nations labor to keep the Israeli-Hamas war from spreading across the Middle East. Yemen's Houthi rebels have been attacking ships in the region for weeks, saying they won't stop until Israel halts the war. The U.S. and the United Kingdom have countered the Houthi attacks with multiple rounds of airstrikes targeting rebel airbases. It's about the middle of our broadcast, so we turn now to obituaries. There are four today. The first is for Linda Simon. Linda Simon, a cherished teacher, devoted daughter, and beloved friend, departed this world on December 22, 2023. She leaves behind a legacy of love, compassion, and unwavering strength that will forever remain in the hearts of those who had the privilege of knowing her. Born to Anna Elizabeth and Maurice Arnold Simon on September 28, 1942, Linda was a true force of nature. From a young age, she exhibited a remarkable zest for life and an indomitable spirit that carried her throughout every challenge she encountered. With a bright smile and a kind heart, Linda touched the lives of countless individuals, spreading warmth and happiness wherever she went. She attended Needham High School and played the trumpet in the school band. She was very close to her parents, Anna and Maurice. She had many cocker spaniels, beginning with Muffin and ending with Cagney, whom she was especially fond of. Linda was a teacher for over 30 years in the Yarmouth school system. Her dedication to her profession as a teacher was unparalleled. She had a passion for education and a genuine desire to make a positive impact on the lives of her students. Linda's classroom was a place of inspiration and growth, where she nurtured young minds and instilled in them a love for learning. Her patience, kindness, and unwavering belief in her students left an indelible mark on their lives. A cherished daughter and friend, Linda had a remarkable ability to make everyone feel seen, heard, and valued. 
Her genuine interest in others and her ability to, emph- to empathize made her a confidant to many. Linda's presence in their lives was a gift, and the memories they shared will be treasured forever. In addition to her love for teaching, Linda found solace and joy in the world of literature. She had an insatiable appetite for books, always seeking new stories and adventures within the pages of her favorite novels. Linda's love for reading was contagious, and she often shared her literary discoveries with those around her, spreading the joy of words and imagination. While Linda may no longer be physically present, her spirit will forever shine brightly in the hearts of those she leaves behind. Her memory will continue to inspire, uplift, and remind us of the power of love, kindness, and resilience. Her departure leaves a void in our lives, but her spirit will live on through the memories we hold dear. As we bid farewell to Linda, let us remember her infectious laughter, her boundless love, and the immeasurable impact she had on our lives. May her soul find eternal peace, and may we find solace in knowing that she will ever watch over us. Rest in peace, dear Linda. You will be deeply missed, but your spirit will be forever with us. Our next obituary is for Henry Joseph Bela. Henry J. Bela, Sr., 93, of Centerville, passed away at home on January the 21st, 2024, with his sons Stephen and James by his side. Henry was born on July 8, 1930, in Chicopee. He was the eighth child of Stephen and Mariana Mary Marduz Bela. The parents immigrated to the United States from Poland. Stefan in 1902 from Debno, Galicia, and Mariana in 1905 from Debica, Poland. He is predeceased by one sister and six brothers. Henry attended Mater Dolorosa Elementary School, Holyoke High School, class of 1949, Western New England College, and School of Consumer Banking at University of Virginia in Charlottesville. In June 1949, he started working at the Holyoke National Bank. He trained in various departments and then was assigned to the Consumer Loan Department. In later years, the bank merged with Bank of Boston. He continued to work in the Consumer Loan Department until November 1989, when he retired. He served four years in the U.S. Air Force as a a staff sergeant during the Korean War. Duty stations included Lackland AFB in Texas, Francis E. Warren AFB in Wyoming, Moody AFB in Georgia, and Craig AFB in Alabama. He was a lifetime member of the Knights of Columbus Council 2525 and a fourth-degree member of Assembly No. 402 Honor Guard. He was predeceased by the love of his life, Bernadette, in 2013, after 61 years of marriage. They had lived in Chicopee in Holyoke before moving to the Cape in June 1989. They are survived by their children, Stephen and wife Lynn, Anne Horn and husband Michael, Marcel Max and wife Emma, James, Lisa Young, Henry Jr. and wife Beverly, John and wife Eileen, and Joseph and wife Angela, 
12 grandchildren, Michelle Lee, Jennifer Horn and husband Jeff, Stephanie, Tomas, Martin and wife Marlena, Sarah and husband David Breglio, Joseph Jr., Alexandria, Abigail, Jacob Young, Christopher and Nicholas, three great-grandchildren, Tegan Ray Bila, Maxwell J. Breglio, and Rocco David Breglio, and several nieces and nephews. Visiting hours will be from 3 to 7 p.m. on Sunday, January 28, 2024, at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, John Lawrence Chapel, 3778 Falmouth Road, Marsden Mills. A funeral mass will be celebrated at 11 a.m. on Monday, January 29th, at Our Lady of Victory Church, 230 South Main Street, Centerville, followed by burial at 1.15 p.m. by Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to Our Lady of Victory Parish, 230 South Main Street, Centerville, Massachusetts, 02632. Our next obituary is for retired Lieutenant Colonel Donald Emerson Bailey. Donald Emerson Bailey, retired LTC, ARNGUS slash MAARNG, 77, died Monday, January 22, 2024, at his home in Bourne unexpectedly. He was the husband of Sherry M. Hudson Bailey. Born in New Bedford, he was the son of the late Eleanor Cummings Booth and Perry O. Bailey, who served in the U.S. Army during World War II and participated in the Normandy invasion, landing on Utah Beach. Mr. Bailey served in the Massachusetts Army National Guard for 35 years. During his service, he was a helicopter pilot and a military police officer and the deputy commander of Camp Edwards. He retired in 2001 as a lieutenant colonel. Mr. Bailey was a was an active member of the Mashpee Congregational Church, where he served as moderator. He was a member of the Wareham New Bedford Lodge of Elks and enjoyed golf at Little Harbor in Wareham and Holly Ridge in Sandwich. He also enjoyed building birdhouses. Survivors include his wife and love of his life, Sherry M. Bailey of Bourne, his daughter, Melissa Dufilly, and her husband, Paul, of Dartmouth, his grandchildren, Jack and Julia Dufilly, his siblings, Robert Bailey of Dartmouth and Kathy Walter of Vero Beach, Florida, and several nieces and nephews. He was preceded by his brother, the late Bruce Bailey. Relative and friends are invited to visit on Monday, January 29, 2024, at Chapman Funerals and Cremations, Mashpee, 74 Algonquin Avenue, Mashpee, from 4 to 7 p.m. His funeral service will be held on Tuesday, January 30th, at Mashpee Congregational Church, 259 Shore Drive, Mashpee, at 11 a.m. Interment with military honors will follow at Mass National Cemetery, Bourne. In lieu of flowers, donations in his memory may be made to Mashpee Congregational Church, Post Office Box 1796, Mashpee Mass, 02649, or online at www.mashpeecongregationalchurch.org. 
For directions or to leave a message of condolence, visit www.chapmanfuneral.com. Our final obituary for today is for Richard Edward Canning, Jr. Richard E. Canning, Jr., 81, of East Sandwich, Massachusetts, passed away peacefully on January 22nd with the hope and faith of seeing his beloved wife of nearly 60 years again. Richard grew up in East Sandwich and graduated from Sandwich High School in 1960. He met the love of his life, Shirley, in 1955 at a square dance in the East Sandwich Grange Hall, and they were together from that day on. They wed in 1963, and he graduated from the University of Massachusetts in 1964. Richard was a farmer at heart and an entrepreneur in spirit. He built several successful businesses, was a driving force in the cranberry industry, served on the Massachusetts Board of Agriculture, and was a member of the Board of Directors at A.D. Makepeace Company for over 25 years. Makepeace honored him in July by dedicating the cranberry bogs to him that he had a pivotal role in preparing for the future. These bogs were developed with hybrid cranberry varieties designed to withstand climate change while increasing fruit yields. The canning bogs will stand as a testament to Richard's agribusiness acumen for generations to come. Richard was preceded by his wife, Shirley Howling Canning of East Sandwich, and his parents, Richard E. Canning Sr. and Florence Cahoon. He is survived by his treasured children, Edward Canning and wife Kelly Sullivan of Dennis, Craig Canning of Columbia, New Hampshire, and Cheryl Canning Quast and husband Rick Quast of West Barnstable, his cherished grandchildren, Ben, Cassandra, Katie, Kayla, Kevin, Bryce, Hannah, Jared, Ethan, and Atlas, his precious great-granddaughter, Natalie, and his adored nephews and nieces. He is also survived by his dear siblings, Claire DeSillitz, Elaine Goslin, and David Canning, and his much-beloved cousin, William Christie. Whether you knew him as Bud or Dick, he would have a genuine smile and listening ear to greet you. He was generous with his time and talents and always poised to help anyone in need. He will be remembered for his quick wit, generous heart, and the love he had for his family. He will be dearly missed by all who were blessed enough to know him, work beside him, and love him. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made in Richard's honor to the Sandwich Fire Department. A celebration of life for the family will be planned at a future date. Continuing with the Cape Cod Times, I think it's always good to hear a little bit about local sports. This article is entitled, Effort Pays Off, Amateur Boxy, Boxer Truth Hardy Making Noise on Cape Cod. And there's a photograph of uh, two young men boxing uh, at the Mixed Martial Arts Gym in Hyannis. This is reported by Courtney Jacobs. Having four older brothers as a young boy is not always a bad thing. Yes, there is a lot of fighting, but what if all the headlocks, wedgies, and knuckle sandwiches were worth it? Stick with me. Thomas Hardy always had boxing gloves lying around due to his love of the actual sport and having four older brothers. 
One day, Hardy decided to pick those gloves up and do something with them. It wasn't to hit one of his brothers. Let me explain. Hardy, who is a freshman at Barnstable High School, played sports like most kids his age, baseball, football, and basketball. But it was something else that intrigued him even more, boxing. Hardy started boxing at the age of 12 and had his first official amateur fight at 13. Fast forward to January the 6th of this year, and Hardy won the New England Silver Gloves, 110 pounds, and became the first amateur boxer on Cape Cod to advance to the National Silver Gloves at the age of 14. To make his win even better, it was against an opponent he'd lost to in December. Quote, I knew I was going to win because we went in with a game plan, and I trust my trainers and my teammates, and I was pretty ready for that fight. Hardy said, quote, I stuck to my game plan the whole fight, made one or two little adjustments, and that was it. I dominated the fight, too, close quote. Hearing that your child wants to take up boxing is not your everyday topic of conversation, but Thomas's father, John Hardy, was on board from day one. He just had one condition, quote, I wanted him to learn it the right way, get a good trainer, John Hardy said. Insert Jesse Barbosa. If you're thinking Barbosa's name and think uh, seeing Barbosa's name and thinking to yourself it sounds familiar, you're not going crazy. Barbosa is a professional boxer out of Hyannis with a record of 11-4 and 1 with his last fight being in 2016. Since then, Barbosa has been training people who want to learn about boxing as his love for the sport carried outside the ring. He said he had an obligation to fill. Quote, Quite frankly, I owe it to boxing, Barbosa said. Boxing has given me so much in my life that I feel like I got to give a little back for it. Close quote. Barbosa ordinarily does not train younger kids, so he wasn't going to give Thomas Hardy a shot, who was 12 at the time. Seeing him in action changed Barbosa's mind. Quote, I couldn't tell what it was, but I could tell he was serious and had a certain work ethic, ethic about him that I admired, Barbosa said. I let him stick around, and the rest is he- history, close quote. Barbosa compared Thomas Hardy's work ethic to that of a seasoned vet. On Friday nights, when the other kids were out hanging with their friends, Thomas Hardy was in the gym grinding like, like no tomorrow, quote, it's paying off. He's able to do things a lot of guys can't do in the ring, Barbosa said. John Hardy said he knew his son was special when he saw him sparring for the first time. Quote, he started going up against grown men, and I thought to myself, this kid's pretty good. I was a little nervous, but fine once I saw him holding his own, John Hardy said. One day, when Thomas Hardy was training, Barbosa said, quote, that kid is the truth, close quote. The word truth stuck and became his ring name. To make the name mean even more, Thomas Hardy had red shirts that read truth and the numbers 832 below it. The numbers represent the Bible scripture John 832, which reads, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Thomas Hardy is now 3-2 in his amateur career and will travel over a 1,000 miles to Missouri for his next fight in the National Silver Gloves on February the 1st. With his upcoming bout, he is ready to do what he did two weeks ago. 
quote, stick with the game plan and run with it. I trust my boxing skills and I trust my trainers, Thomas Hardy said. There's always a little bit of nerves, but I just roll with it. Once I'm in the ring, I'm chillin'. More Cape and Island news from the Cape Cod Times. This article is entitled, County Agency Will Weigh Change of Use for Shelter Plan. And this is reported by Zane Razak for the Cape Cod Times. The Cape Cod Commission will decide whether plans to replace the now-shuttered South Dennis Healthcare with a family shelter program qualify as a change in use, according to the Dennis Town Planner. Housing Assistance Corporation wants to use the former 128-bed nursing home in South Dennis to house up to 79 families, consolidating its three family shelters in Barnstable, Falmouth, and Bourne. The housing agency bought the facility from One Love Lane, South Dennis, LLC, for $4.3 million, according to a deed recording with Barnstable County Registry of Deeds on September 28th for One Love Lane in South Dennis. The organization also wants the project to be protected under the state Dover, Dover Amendment. The Dover Amendment, originally adopted in 1950, mandates that proposed religious and educational land uses be given more favorable treatment than the other proposed uses, such as residential, commercial, or industrial, under local zoning ordinances and bylaws, according to the Massachusetts Interlocal Insurance Agent Association, an interlocal service of the Massachusetts Municipal Association. The town will make a final decision on the Dover Amendment when we have an application and full information on exactly what is being proposed, said town planner Paul Foley in an email to the Times. Dennis does not have a separate application for special review, so Housing Assistance Corporation would have to apply for a special permit, as the project will require will require one, unless the town agrees that a Dover Amendment covers it, he said. Meanwhile, town officials sent the project in November to the Cape Cod Commission for Mandatory Development of Regional Impact Referral, which is triggered with a change of use for a private health facility greater than 10,000 square feet. The commission asked the town to resend the referral when a local permit has been applied for and also said that it would evaluate whether it counted as a true change of use. The Cape Cod Commission is responsible for reviewing developments of regional impact, meaning proposed developments that are presumed to have significant impacts beyond their local communities due to their size or other details. Our final story today is entitled, Republican Voters Face a Sticky Issue in Nevada. And this is reported by Olivia Munson. Election season is in full swing, and the countdown to the 2024 presidential vote is inching closer. The Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary have come and gone, bringing each party one step closer to deciding their nominees. President Joe Biden is running for re-election, but some others, including Representative Dean Phillips, Democrat of Minnesota, hope to unseat him for the Democratic spot. The Republican Party is still deciding who will head up its ticket as former President Donald Trump and Nikki Haley continue to face off. Ahead on the electoral calendar are the Nevada primary and caucuses. Here's what to know about 
the parallel events happening in the Silver State. The Nevada presidential primaries will take place on February the 6th. The Democratic primary is the party's second political contest following the South Carolina primary on February the 3rd. Whoever wins the Nevada Democratic primary will receive the state's 49 delegates. There will also be a state-run Republican primary on February the 6th. This election, however, is non-binding and does not decide who will receive the party's delegates. Instead, Republican caucuses organized by the GOP will take place on February the 8th. That will dictate who is awarded the state's 26 delegates. In 2021, Nevada's legislature passed a law that that requires the state to hold presidential primaries, which informed the nomination process of the Democratic and Republican parties. The law was a response to reporting issues during a 2020 Democratic caucus that led to a recount. Caucuses are run by political parties, while primary elections are run by state and local governments. Under the Nevada law, there must be a Republican and Democratic primary. However, each party is not bound to the results and can choose other methods to assign the state's delegates. The Republican Party in Nevada has decided to stick with the caucus system. In May 2023, the party sued the state about the primary election law. Nevada's GOP then passed a rule barring any candidate who signed up for the state's primary from participating in its caucuses and therefore receiving delegates. There are two separate ballots for the Republican primary and caucuses. The Nevada Republican primary has no impact on who receives the national nomination. Registered Republicans in Nevada can legally vote in both primary and caucuses. Candidates on the Democratic primary ballot include Biden and author Marianne Williamson. Phillips will not be on the Democratic ballot in Nevada because he missed the filing deadline. For the Republicans, Haley is the only top candidate on the Republican primary's ballot. Meanwhile, Trump is participating in the Republican caucus. This means Haley is not included on the caucus ballots and Trump will not be on the primary ballot. That's all we have time for today. This is Daphne. I have enjoyed reading with you the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, January 25th, and I hope that you have a dry and happy weekend.